Good evening, everyone. Welcome back. Thank you for being here tonight. Tonight we're looking at Psalm 5. It's a psalm of prayer by David. Many years ago, there used to be a Volkswagen commercial, and uh, it began by showing this white, beautiful, snow-covered road with a snowplow coming through and just opening it up and cars following the snowplow. And there was just a question written at the bottom of the screen. And that was, how does the snowplow driver get to work? And then they switched to this snow-covered road that went up a hill, and here's a little Volkswagen Beetle just going right through the snow, up the hill, and to the garage where the man got out and got into his snowplow. So the idea, of course, was that a Volkswagen can go where no other car can go. Well, tonight we ask the question, where does the king turn for help? Where does King David go in order to find help as everyone is looking to David? Who does David look to? The key verse is Psalm 5, verse 2. Give attention to the sounds of my cry, my king, and my God, for to you do I pray. We begin first by looking at how David characterizes his prayer. David declares that God would listen. Uh, David desires that God would listen to what David has to say. Give ear to my words. David desires that God would understand and discern David's frustrations. Consider my groaning. Consider us to reflect, to understand, to discern. And the word for groanings are translated as sighs. And there's a progression of thought here. It goes from the more discernible to the less discernible. Give ear to my words. Consider my groanings. And then thirdly, give attention to the sound of my cry. And here again we have this, this beautiful word picture, as when a mother attends to the needs of her baby when she hears the sounds of his or her cry. Uh, those of you who have very, very young children or had young children know that babies cry, a different kind of cry, depending on whether they are just tired and irritable or whether they are hungry or whether they're in pain. And they give off a cry. And a sensitive mother can discern what that baby's needs are and go to that, that baby. Now, it just so happens that I, as a young toddler, spoke extremely late. I it was well, well over two years old before I uttered a word. I didn't even utter baby talk. I didn't say anything for a long time. In fact, they took me to get tests and they thought maybe I didn't have uh, right hearing and so on and so forth. So they went through these battery of tests and they, they decided I was somewhat normal. And uh, that, wasn't, that really wasn't the, the situation. So anyway, but I didn't talk. So I can remember, actually, the first time I talked. 
And I can tell you what the occasion was. I woke up and I had an incredible earache. And uh, my ear was just pounding and pounding. And I was crying. And uh, I was crying uh, inconsolably. So my mother came into the room, you know, and sat down. And she's holding me on the rocker. And she's rocking back and forth and, and uh, trying to comfort me. And I'm just wailing. And, uh, you know, she just didn't know what was wrong. And finally, after what seemed like an eternity, I don't know really how long it was, eventually in her frustration but her wisdom said to me, put your hand where it hurts. And immediately my hand shot up to my right ear and she knew that I had this earache and she took care of it. But I can remember the thought that went through my mind. You mean all this time you didn't know what was wrong with me? It just was mind-boggling to me that my mother couldn't read my mind. I just figured she knew everything, I guess. I don't know, but it was the first time that I realized that you'd better learn how to communicate because she didn't know you had this earache. Well, the imagery here is a God who understands and discerns our cry when we are incapable of putting into words, when we can't express ourselves. And we all know what that's like. And sometimes we can't even discern our own hearts. You know, we're, we're upset, and you know, our spouse may say to you, what are you upset about? I don't even know. I don't know. Why are we depressed? I don't know. Why are we sad? I don't know. I don't know. And it's awfully hard to sometimes even discern our own thoughts, let alone try to explain it to somebody else. And here, the psalmist is saying, God hears my cries. God knows. The progression. He pays attention to my words. He considers my groanings. He even pays attention to my cries. He knows. He knows. So David expresses himself to God the way in which a baby expresses his or herself to his or her mother. David characterizes the relationship to the one to whom he prays. The one whom King David prays is David's king. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my king, my king. It is significant that David the king recognizes a king over himself. This morning, I mentioned that when David was bringing the ark to Jerusalem the second time, the second time, after he had confessed his sin of moving the ark in an inappropriate manner, which God was not pleased and found to be unacceptable, David humbles himself and acknowledges his own sinfulness and moves the ark in a way that he should. And I, I said he took off his kingly robes and put on a linen ephod as a way of publicly humiliating himself and acknowledging there, there was one over him. But David knew what it was for his subjects to look to him. They looked to him for leadership, especially as a warrior. In those eras, the primary function of the king was to lead the army into battle. Who was the one that was going to deliver David? Who was the one that was going to help him in all his adversities and all his difficulties 
in all his trials. David said, you are my king. I'm trusting in you. Again, it's a wonderful image. And uh, we certainly don't live in a country that has a sovereign. We have a president, and the president doesn't have nearly the power that a king does. king has power over life and death. A king can make any kind of decision or rule. He's a complete autocrat. But David knew, because David was a shepherd king, of a king that desired to protect and help and minister to the people. And so David says, you are my king. But not only does David say, you are my king, be the one to whom David prays is more than David's king. He's David's God. With attention to the sound of my cry, my king and my cod, my God. So here's an ex- expletive here of, not only are you my king, but you are my God. David realized that there were things he could not do. David realized that people might look to him, but he had limitations. He was a mere man. God has no limitations. God has no imperfections. God has no weaknesses. God has no enemies that he cannot conquer. And so David says, I'm praying to my king, I'm praying to my God, It says, for to you do I pray. That's the one that David is turning to. That's the one that David looks to for help. For whence cometh my help? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. The creator God. Uh, It's really essential for us if we're going to derive the comfort that we are to have in prayer to first of all know that God hears us, God knows us, God understands our thought afar off, Psalm 139, meaning before we even think a thought, he knows it. We don't even have to express in words. He can read our minds. He can read our hearts. And now, we realize the one to whom we go to is our king and our God. Three, David characterizes the anticipation that he has in God meeting his need. First, the very first thing that David does is pray to his God. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning you hear my voice. First thing, I am going to come to you. There is an old saying, when everything else fails, pray. And sometimes that's what happens. Sometimes prayer is our last alternative. Sometimes we do everything else. We try to take things in our own hand. We go to the doctor. We do this. We do that. David says, I'm going to pray to you in the morning. First thing. David prepares his heart in approaching God. He says, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice. He is acknowledging the fact that he does not deserve to be heard on his own righteousness, but it's only through God's righteousness that he is heard, even as we saw last week. And now this. David anticipates the Lord coming to him. In the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice. And for you, and watch. And watch. I have here like a baby standing in its crib, 
crying and looking in the doorway in anticipation of his mother entering the room. I think you can all relate to that. You've seen that. A toddler who's crying out, wakes up, and is just anticipating, looking at that doorway for the mother to come in, to help, to console. David is expressing this incredible anticipation. He believes that God is going to work. He believes that God is going to move. He believes that prayer is effectual. He believes that God is going to answer, that God is going to hear him when he calls. Uh, It's important that we are going to have that sense of anticipation of, again, we're going to receive the comfort that we should when we pray. Third, oh, so number one, here we have the image of helplessness, helplessness. Uh, Just as that toddler standing in the corner of the crib is totally dependent upon its mother, so here the image is one of dependence. David realizes that on his own he can do nothing. And again, here we have the image of expectation. Number four, David characterizes the goodness of God. God takes no pleasure when evil prospers. He talked about the God that he looks to. Now he describes this God. Verse four, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. He doesn't take pleasure when wickedness abounds. My father had a saying. My father used to say to me, some people are the happiest when they're making other people miserable. God doesn't take any pleasure in making people miserable. God doesn't find a thrill in doing that which is wrong. You know, some people find it amusing, entertaining, uh, exhilarating to sin, to steal. It's some kind of rush. God doesn't take any pleasure in wickedness, which is a huge difference from us. For the Word of God says there's pleasure in sin for a season. We have a tendency to delight in wrongdoing until the consequences occur, until the comes up and happen, (laughs) until the unpleasant realities occur because of our sin. But we all know that for a time, sin can be pleasurable or else we wouldn't do it. But God takes no pleasure in wickedness. There is no allurement to God. God has no battle against sin. It's not appealing to him. He can't be tempted because he hates it, which is B. God will not have evil live with him. For you're not God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. And here is the the picture of God's throne. Here's the picture of God's temple. Here's the picture of God's dwelling place. And the idea is that he's not going to have any servants. He's not going to have any attendants. He's not going to have anybody that is on his role or his staff that does evil. And then later in the the Psalms, David talks about who's going to 
serve in his kingdom and who's going to be the one that David prospers. And he's going to be looking for the faithful of the land to elevate. Well, he says, the evil will not stand before you. God will not place the self-confident in places of honor. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. God despises those who do evil. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Those who speak lies do not deliver themselves, but rather come to a dreadful end. You destroy those who speak lies. There are those that defend themselves by lies. There are those that misrepresent their deeds by lies. Uh, they take others in. They are schemers. They are individuals that uh, deceive. God is not taken in. You can't manipulate God. You can't butter God up. You can't flatter God when we pray. He knows our hearts. You know, and if we think, well, we'll praise him, and then after we praise him, then we'll get to what we really want. And, you know, some people almost have that sense. You've got to butter God up before you lay into what you really want. But God destroys those who speak lies. God is indignant and repulsed by those who would do harm to others. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. And deceitful man there has more to do with the, the person who's manipulative, the person who's trying to gain an advantage over someone else. And it's not unusual that God would put those two things together, this aspect of bloodthirsty or deceitful. For Jesus said, if you are angry in your heart towards someone, it's as though you murdered them. It stems from the same root. And so God abhors those that would take the life of any, and he abhors any that would do harm to others. So David contrasts his situation with that of the wicked. First, God does not treat David the way that God treats the wicked. Verse 7, but I, but I. And this conversive is strong. He's making a distinction. Going through and talking about how God abhors the evil, how God is going to destroy the wicked, how God is going to respond to those who God does not take delight in. And now David makes this contrast. But I, but I. But I'm different, David says. David knows that when he prays, God's going to pay attention. God's going to listen. God's going to hear him. This God who destroys the wicked, this God who can't tolerate deceit, those that speak lies, those that are proud, David says, but I, but I. But what gives David that, that confidence, that contrast how can David be so sure? Is he like that Pharisee who stands and prays and says, I'm thankful that I'm not like other men? Is that David? Is that our confidence? That we're not like other people? That we don't do the things that they do? Well, look at the next phrase. David is treated differently from the wicked due to God's love for David. 
But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, because God's love is described in two ways. It's abundant. It's abundant. It's overflowing. God's grace is greater than all our sins, we sing. And it's so true. God's love overcomes anything that we say or do. It can't be taken away. Ephesians 1 is so beautiful in, in that great truth. God's love is abundant and it's steadfast. And it's not fickle. Probably heard the illustration of a daisy. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. David, God doesn't fall out of love with us. God doesn't stop loving us. God's love endures. This morning, David is angry with God. And God still loves David. And we're going to see in the next chapter this incredible, incredible promise that God makes to David. Not because he's deserving, but because he loves him. Because we belong to God. We belong to God. In our best moments, in our best moments, we love our children. Not because of their abilities. Not because of their talents. And not even because of the positive reflection they have upon us or because they're the best kids in the world. But the reality is we love them because they belong to us. They're ours. They've been entrusted to us by God the Father. And it's our responsibility to love them through thick and thin. They may do things that we disagree with. There may be times that we have to reprimand and discipline them. But we should always love them. In fact, to discipline is a part of love. As a father disciplines his children, the scripture says. So the Heavenly Father disciplines us. He loves us enough to bring us back to himself. So number one, David does not seek to contrast his godliness with that of the ungodly. Rather, David marvels that he is a recipient of love when others are recipients of hatred. So in Psalm 143, verse 2, enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. David says, again, if God were to keep track of our iniquities, who could stand? So now we have the contrast. See, David is welcomed into God's house, unlike the ungodly who are banished. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. He asked the question, and he found out the wicked will not dwell with God. But he says, I will enter your house. Not only will I enter your house, I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. 
David will pray, being mindful of the one to whom he is approaching is holy. Is holy. It's good for us to be reminded that even though God loves us, and he does, that he is our God, and he is a holy God. And so we shouldn't enter his presence frivolously or arrogantly, but in humility we come into his presence in fear of him, which is an awfully difficult concept in the scriptures to talk about the fear of God. It's so multifaceted and it's different for those that know him and those who don't. It's different for those that are close to him and for those that are far away. Fear. Fear. Fear of what? Fear of what? Fear of punishment? Fear of hell? Well, not for David and not for us. And so there are a lot of Bible translations that like to say awe. Awe. Maybe that does it. I don't know if this means anything to you, but as a, as a child, I really looked up to my dad. I thought my dad was the greatest. But I had a huge respect for my, for my father. And I had one big fear, and that was disappointing him. There were a couple occasions when I did that. And he told me, not harshly, he just said, Dale, I'm really disappointed. I wish he would have struck me rather than say that. For David, this fear of God is the opposite of what in the New Testament it says that we're going to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Remember Peter saying to the Lord, after the Lord told him that he would deny the Lord, Peter says, I won't deny you. I'm willing to die for you. Jesus says, before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. You know the story. The servant girl comes up to Peter and says, aren't you one of them? No. Didn't I see you with them? No. And she accuses him again, and this time he even takes the name's Lord's name in vain to demonstrate that he doesn't belong to him. He swears. And here's the cock crow. And the scripture says that Jesus looked at him and he went out and he wept bitterly. I don't think that that was an evil eye. I don't think that that was a scornful look.
I think it was a look of pity and compassion. For he knew all along that Peter was going to deny. It's just that Peter wasn't willing to accept where he was in his own heart before God. And he looks at him, I think, with compassion. And the reason for that is, of course, after Jesus rises from the dead, he encounters Peter again. and says to Peter three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? I think for the three times that he denied, but not as a rebuke, but as a way of encouraging Peter, for he says, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. So there's this concern for godliness and holiness. So a a person who has that concern is never going to enter into a licentiousness. There are so many people that, that think you can't preach the doctrines of grace because then people are going to say, it doesn't matter how you live and you can just do whatever you want and because the only reason people serve God is because they want to go to heaven. I don't believe that. I believe the more you love God, the more you're not going to want to sin. Not just for our own selfish benefit, but we want to please him. We want to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. We want to have a sense of his pleasure. So with that in mind, David characterizes his request. David wants to live righteously despite the onslaught of his enemies. Verse 8, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of mine enemies. What a strange concept. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of mine enemies. He doesn't say, deliver me from my enemies. He doesn't say, spare my life. He says, lead me in your righteousness. David fears the spiritual danger that is occasioned by the enemies that he faces more than the physical danger. David is afraid that his enemies are going to turn David's heart away from God that David may envy his enemies, that David may fear his enemies, that David may want to placate his enemies, that David might want to make a truce with his enemies when he shouldn't. Peer pressure. When we cave to doing what other people want us to do, in order to gain their approval. David doesn't want to risk God's approval for the approval of men. He doesn't want to risk God's approval for an easy way out. To make a covenant with those that he shouldn't make a covenant with. He wants to be like his God, who will not reward iniquity. 
who will not allow the wicked to stand before him. David doesn't want to compromise in his godliness. And so he says, lead me in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. Number two, David wants to walk the straight and narrow way, not to depart from it, not to veer off to the left or to the right. This is David's greatest fear in this psalm, in the midst of all that he's going through, that he might wander from God. Let me ask you, in all that you're going through, in times of difficulty and hardship, and, and you are concerned about the outcome, the future. What's going to happen? Is our primary concern, is this going to move me away from God? And am I going to allow this to enter into my relationship to God? Am I going to allow this to be an obstacle in my fellowship with God? Well, David prays about that. This is that prayer. So then B, David then describes why his enemies are a spiritual threat to him. David's enemies are not saying to him what is true, for there is no truth in their mouths. What they're saying about God is a lie. What they're saying about David is a lie. And David should not believe those lies. They seek not to be a help to David, but rather to bring David down. Their inmost self is destruction. Their words could kill. Their throat is an open grave. Their words praise David in order to manipulate and gain an advantage over David. It says in the end of verse 9, they flatter with their tongue. David is talking about these people. And they're on a spectrum. Everything from flattering David to threatening David. But all of them have the same cumulative effect, and that is to cause David to doubt and to fear and to quit trusting in God. So David prays for the destruction of the wicked. David prays that they would get what they deserve. Make them bear their guilt. David prays that they would experience the consequence of their decisions. Oh God, let them fall by their own counsels. See, David prays that they would be expelled from God's presence and his own presence because the abundance of their transgressions cast them out. There are what are known as imprecatory psalms. Those are psalms in which David prays against his enemies. I've done a whole series a lot of years ago, but maybe some of you remember on the imprecatory psalms, I preached through every one of them and dealt with the issues there. And it may seem odd for David to be praying against his enemies, but one thing we're going to see in 2 Samuel as we continue to work its way through it is David's compassion for those that are rebelling against him. David is the king. And Absalom's going to rebel against him. And Shimei's going to rebel against him. And there are going to be all these people that rise up against David. And people are going to continually tell David to kill them. And they're 
Treasonous. David's the king. But David doesn't order the death of any one of them. He's going to leave that in God's hands. He's not ignorant. He's not impervious. He's not naive. He realizes that he has legitimate enemies. There are people out to kill David. But God knows that too. And David just refuses to take matters into his own hands. Even though he's the king. And so he prays. God, you know the situation. Verse 10. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels because of the abundance of their transgressions. Cast them out. And now this remarkable statement, for they have rebelled against you. David realizes that in rebelling against David, they've ultimately rebelled against God because God has anointed David to be king. And so David is more concerned about the fact that they rebelled against God than they rebelled against him. And it's because of that fact he believes that God will act. So then David prays for a preservation of the godly. David recognizes that he's not alone in the service for God. Verse 11, but let all who take refuge in, your, in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. Remember, Elijah thought he was the only one left serving God. God said, I have 3,000 have not bowed their knee to Baal. David did not think he's the only one serving God. David prays, not just for himself, but for the well-being of all of God's people. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them. Not just over me, over God's people. For David realized that the troubles that he had were not unique to himself. There were others. David was to be the king. He was to minister to these people. And David realized that as king, he was limited. But God was not limited. And as he was looking to God to help him, David was also looking to God to help his people. Again, such great lessons. As we look to God to help us and we recognize our inadequacies, and if we really come to grips with our inadequacies, we realize we can't really help other people. We can't reach into the hearts of our children and change their hearts. We can't change those that are living lives of rebellion. We can't bring people to repentance. We can't save anybody. But God can. But God can. And in those moments of legitimate frustration and realization of our helplessness, that's when we're the most healthy. For it should then cause us to pray. To pray. Pray for our children. Pray for our brothers and sisters. Pray for those who need repentance. Pray. For that's what God's people do. They pray. See, David prays that 
their deliverance would be unto the honor and glory of God. Again, it's not an end of itself. It's not just so that these people are going to be happy. That those who love your name may exalt in you. That this would result in your honor and glory. David acknowledges that the godly are well cared for by God. Verse 12, for you bless the righteous, O Lord. Now, there's a statement of fact. Now, this is not a prayer request, but a recognition. You bless the righteous, O Lord. You are this good king. You are this good God. You do bring blessing. Last week, we saw Psalm 4. That in the time that their corn and their wine increased, God was more blessed to us. And then E, David acknowledges that their acceptance by God is, is an assurance of God's protection. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Again, this beautiful imagery. Protection, a shield. But what is that shield that's held up? What is it that's going to fight off the arrows of the enemy and the wicked? It's God's favor. It's that God looks upon the righteous favorably, graciously, that God will help. God will help. You know why children can be so happy and carefree? Because they don't have to worry about anything. Because they believe that mom and dad are going to make it right. They don't think about, are they going to have a place to sleep tomorrow? They don't think about, are they going to have something to eat, food on the table? They don't worry about what tomorrow holds because mom and dad will take care of them. If it pours outside, if the lightning strikes, they run into their mom and dad's bed and crawl up and everything's okay. Now, unfortunately, they put more trust in us than they should and they don't realize our limits. But God has no limits. God has no limits. So when the thunder comes, when it rolls in, when the lives are difficult and we wonder what tomorrow holds, we run to our God. Like a child who is helpless and can't even run. And so just sits in the corner and cries and waits for her mother or dad to come into the room and help them. May we trust in our God, sometimes perhaps literally sitting in a corner and just weeping, knowing that he hears, knowing that he will come, knowing he will help. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for being our God, for being our help and our stay.
but realizing that it's the abundance of your steadfast love that gives us confidence as we pray. Oh, Lord, there is much in this world that is against us. Maybe we don't have the enemies that David did. We don't have the challenges that he did. But Lord, I pray that you would give us the confidence that is expressed in this psalm. That the one to whom we pray is our king and our God. You will hear. You will pay attention. You will understand. We will experience the shield of your favor. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. And we are dismissed.